another episode of Radio Rounds, the podcast interview series presented by St. Louis Children's Hospital, covering pediatric topics of interest to doctors and healthcare professionals. Here's Melanie Cole. Welcome. Our topic today is polycystic ovarian syndrome in adolescents, and my guest is Dr. Holly Hefkin. She's a Washington University pediatric and adolescent gynecologist at St. Louis Children's Hospital. Dr. Hefkin, explain a little bit about polycystic ovarian syndrome. Yes, yeah, so polycystic ovarian syndrome, what's uh, commonly referred to as PCOS, is really a spectrum of clinical disorders that's associated with the increase in androgen production from the ovaries. Is it common in young girls? Um, it's actually pretty common. It's it's one of the most common endocrinopathies in all reproductive age women, but we do see it a lot in adolescents. Um, and depending on a number of different diagnostic criteria that are out there, um, it's anywhere between about 6 to almost up to 26% of the population. Um, and just due to a number of different um, kind of concerns and, and medical issues that come off of the diagnosis, it, it can actually be a pretty high cost burden as well. And, and some, you know, uh, studies have it up to being about $4 million um, dollars of cost burden in the U.S. per per year. So it, it is something that is is pretty common and something that we see in our clinics, um, at least on a, a weekly, if not daily basis. Wow. So do we know what causes it, and is there a genetic component? Um, so we know a little bit about what causes it. There, there's not a single cause that's been identified, and, and the exact pathophysiology isn't clear, but we think that there's sort of a multifaceted trait with lots of different factors. So there's over 100 different genetic um, components that are being studied, um, both in, you know, in steroid synthesis, looking at different metabolism um, components and inflammatory markers. Um, there are some people who are looking at intrauterine effects, such as if increased um, prenatal exposure to androgens can have an effect on, um, you know, giving you a, a predisposition to PCOS. Um, some environmental components are being looked at. Mostly that's looking at things like plasticizers and PP, BPA in our, in our food packaging, but also mm -hmm. certain medical devices. Um, but really the things that, you know, we look most at are, is there an overexpression of our um, steroidogenic enzymes in the ovary um, or an overexpression in LH receptors that are then leading to this overproduction of steroids um, that, that causes PCOS? So some play in, in all of these is, is likely what the cause is, but we can't really pinpoint one exact thing that, that leads to PCOS. Dr. Hefkin, what is the clinical presentation in adolescence? What are some of the first signs and symptoms? So, you know, classically PCOS has been thought of as this um, characterization of hyperandrogenism, so elevated steroid hormones, some type of ovulatory dysfunction or irregularities in the menstrual cycle, and then polycystic ovarian morphology, so a large amount of follicles in the ovary. Um, but, you know, the exact pathophysiology, like we said, the diagnostic criteria and how to treat patients with PCOS, every aspect of PCOS pretty much remains controversial. Um, and that is especially true in adolescents where all of those things are even more controversial than they are in our adult population. Well, while you're mentioning controversial, what are the diagnostic criteria and why are they controversial? 
Yeah, so, I mean, that's actually a very interesting story that could probably be our entire talk. But um, over the years, there's sort of been an evolution of a lot of different criteria for diagnosing PCOS in the adult population. Um, and currently, we're utilizing a system where we look at these three symptoms that patients can have. So ovulatory dysfunction or abnormal periods hyperandrogenism, which clinically is usually looking at abnormal hair growth, but also things like acne or virilization, or you can look at it biochemically, looking at like elevated testosterone levels. And then the third thing is the polycystic appearing ovaries on ultrasound. So do patients have a number, an increased number of enlarged follicles? Um, and in the adult populations, patient needs to have two of those three criteria. And depending on which two or all three, we put them into one of four different phenotypes, and we can use those different phenotypes to assist us clinically on how we think the patients are going to do throughout their lifetime. Um, the difficulty in adolescence is that a number of those things, if not all of those things, can be normal in an adolescent, right? Um, you know, it's pretty common knowledge that in the first few years after patients start their periods, they can be very anovulatory and irregular periods are common. Um, and then when we look at um, the criteria for adult hyperandrogenism, we just don't know how reliable that, that is in adolescence, right? So there's this maturing of the HPO axis, you know, from the hypothalamic um, and pituitary gland down to the ovaries, and when that happens, you have increases in, in androgen levels. And so how should we be evaluating adolescents, and what does that mean? It's hard to tell. And things like acne are very common in adolescents, right? So some of those criteria are hard to use. And then that third criteria, especially the polycystic appearing ovary, is actually very normal in an adolescent. And even up to half of adolescents, that can just be how their ovary looks. And there are studies that show that half of girls who never go on to have PCOS actually meet the diagnostic criteria for a polycystic appearing ovary. So um, it can just be very difficult to then, you know, make that diagnosis in a patient who's in their adolescent years. Once you've diagnosed this, speak about treatment a little bit and the risks and benefits associated with certain treatments. Yeah, well, you know, I think the first thing would be, first we have to kind of make that diagnosis in adolescence. And so, you know, we have made some strides to be able to do that. So um, even though it is challenging, over the last few years, there there have been some strides in that. And there was a recent international consortium where some of the pediatric experts in the field, so from endocrinology and gynecology and adolescent medicine have came together and and really have put out some guidelines to help. Um, so there are some guidelines that you can look at now that say, well, in the adolescents, let's look at just their menstrual cycle abnormalities and hyperandrogenism and focus down on those things, not looking at the ovaries or acne or these type of, of problems and try to wait till patients are, are two years out from their menarche to, to do that. So there are some criteria that we can use. Um, and then if we are thinking that a patient either has PCOS or, you know, we're going to not give them that diagnosis yet, but they're heading in that direction, um, th then we can treat them as a patient who is at risk for PCOS, right? Um, and the mainstay of treatment for any of those patients is going to be a lifestyle modification. And we're going to try to counsel them on, in all patients who either have PCOS or at risk of, of good diet and exercise management. That's always going to be key. 
Um, above that, it's really kind of based on what type of symptoms the patient has. So in, if we're worried about their menstrual-related concerns, we want to make sure that all patients are trying to have regular menstrual cycles or cycles that are not bothersome to them, at the very least to make sure they're having periods um, more often than 90 days to provide protection to them. Um, and then from there, it's more about what's bothering the patient if they're bothered by their acne or their hair growth. In most of their scenarios, we can treat them with a hormonal medication um, to bring down their steroid levels and to help with all of those things. Um, and then in patients who are not able to be treated with a hormone medication, there's a number of other options that we have for them. And we can kind of talk through them with the risks and benefits um, of what those treatments might be. Well, before we do that, tell us about some of the long-term effects of PCOS and complications if left untreated, such as metabolic risk in adolescents. Yeah, so I mean, that's really some of the biggest concerns with PCOS is there is a long-term implication in, in a number of different areas. So um, the main metabolic risks would be things like um, hyperinsulinism. They can have the long-term risk of hypertension, diabetes as they grow into their adult life. Um, from a gynecologic concern, if patients are going undiagnosed or untreated and they're having prolonged times without a menstrual cycle, then we really are putting them at risk for things like endometrial hyperplasia and uh, an eventual uterine cancer. Um, and then there's also the thing that kind of goes unnoticed a lot in patients with PCOS is there is a concern for long-term psychologic um, health problems. A lot of these women have issues with depression and anxiety and some body image dysfunction as they go through both adolescence and their adult life. Um, and these are all things that as even patients who are diagnosed that we have to continue to work with them, not only through their adolescence, but also through their adulthood um, to assure that we're managing properly. Dr. Hefkin, tell us some of the warning signs that a pediatrician should look out for, and when should that pediatrician refer to a specialist? Yeah, so I think the, the biggest thing that we want to make sure of is that we're catching all these red flags um, for patients with abnormal menstrual cycles. Um, I think most pediatricians are very familiar with the basic diagnosis of amenorrhea, which is usually a patient who is not having menstrual cycles by age 15, um, or a patient who's 13 but might um, not be having their signs of um, secondary sexual characteristics, such as breast development, right? Um, but there are other diagnoses for amenorrhea that are less commonly thought of, such as a patient who is 14 and doesn't have their period yet but might have signs of hirsutism because that is giving us concerns for PCOS, right? Um, also, if a patient started um, breast development earlier, like at, you know, 9 or 10 and is now three years past that and doesn't have a menstrual cycle yet, that is technically still a diagnostic criteria for amenorrhea, and that patient would require a workup. And then the other is, is that even though adolescent patients should have, you know, have an expectation that they can have irregular menstrual cycles, um, there, there is a caveat to that, that, that they shouldn't be going more than 90 days without a period, regardless of, of how, where they are, even if they're in their first year um, of, of past their menarche, we would not expect them to have that much irregularity. So um, we, we still want to be looking at those things and not just chalking it up to the fact that they are kind of newly having periods, right? So those are things we want to look for and make sure that those patients are seeing a specialist. 
And Dr. Hefkin, in summary, what can a pediatrician expect after referring a patient to the pediatric and adolescent gynecology team at St. Louis Children's Hospital? And what else would you like them to know about PCOS? Yeah, I mean, I think the things would be to just expect that the patients will get a very well-rounded discussion about the things that we know and we don't know about PCOS um, and that we will be very frank with them. Um, about the fact that they may not leave our office with the diagnosis that day um, because of the limitations um, on being able to do that diagnosis. And often we may be giving them a transitional diagnosis of possible PCOS, right? Um, But that doesn't mean that we cannot treat the patients or provide them with management for the things that bother them, right? We don't have to have a diagnosis of PCOS to be able to help patients with their menstrual cycles or their acne or their hair growth related concerns, um, we just don't want to label them with a diagnosis that, you know, could mean that they would have lifelong concerns if that's not a diagnosis that they truly have. Um, And then also, if patients do end up having concerns for PCOS in the future, um, that this is an ongoing concern and it it does end up being a more multidisciplinary approach that we would like to have throughout their lifetime to help them with all of these things from both the metabolic side, the gynecologic side, and, you know, that sort of psychosocial aspect um, that needs to be done. So it is something that would be between Um, both the specialty care aspect and the um, primary care aspect to make sure that patients are taken care of in a very well-rounded nature. Thank you so much for being on with us today, Dr. Hefkin, and sharing your expertise explaining to other physicians when it's important to refer when it regards to PCOS. And please note that Dr. Hefkin will be presenting PCOS in more detail during the October 26th and 27th Fall Clinical Pediatric Update for CME Credits. To register, call Children's Direct Physician Access Line at 1-800-678-HELP. That's 1-800-678-4357. This is also the same number that a referring physician can use to refer a patient. You're listening to Radio Rounds with St. Louis Children's Hospital. For more information on resources available at St. Louis Children's Hospital, please visit stlouischildrens.org. That's stlouischildrens.org. This is Melanie Cole. Thanks so much for listening.